You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast where we talk about all the things that affect therapists. And today we are looking at why do therapists quit being therapists? And we've discussed a number of these things on our podcast through the years, many of them in positive light of people with side hustles, people looking to expand their practices, people who have bigger messages to share, people who start podcasts and conferences and all of this kind of stuff. But looking at the overall mental health workforce, there are a lot of reasons why. Many of them are things that we just kind of know. The pay is crap for a lot of positions. Sure. The caseloads are high. The number of hours required of positions often extend beyond those that are paid for or advertised. The work-life balance can be atrocious. Why do we quit, Katie? (laughs) (laughs) Just as you were talking about that, I was like, so many people are just so tired it's it's uh and i feel like it's even worse right now with the pandemic because there's not a lot of other distractions there's you know we we did a an episode about this so i won't go too deep into why it's so hard to be a therapist during the pandemic but i think back to my own career trajectory and if i would have stayed my goal would be right now i am either the clinical director, executive director of a community mental health organization. That's what I wanted to do. And that is totally not what I'm doing. And so I think it's, it's something where the focus of this episode, we, we tried to kind of grapple with, how do we talk about this? The focus of this episode seems to be why do people not stay therapists when they had planned to, or want to, because I think there was a, a recent article in the New York Times about how a lot of people are trying to find therapists and just cannot. We have a workforce issue. We have a mental health access issue. And part of it is that we can't keep therapists as clinicians, like doing the clinical work long enough. Or they don't, or that, you know, we could have a whole conversation about saving psychotherapy with Ben around <laughs> why they don't become therapists because the, the vetting process or the, the, the gatekeeping is too intensive. But to me, I feel like there's systemic things that probably are huge and, and daunting and maybe won't feel helpful, but maybe validating around why people don't stay therapists but maybe we'll come up with some individual things that (laughs) that people can do to try to stay therapists if they want to. But to me, I I can only speak to my own story. I became very burned out. My ability to advance was better than others, but I think there are, there are a lack of advancement opportunities and a lack of setting people up to successfully advance. The, The system is run by therapists and therapists aren't necessarily 
good at training other people to be supervisors, to being managers. There's once you move into more of a diverse workload, so to speak, where you're managing people and you're doing program stuff, all the stuff I loved to do, there's not necessarily the training or sufficient training around how to do the other pieces. And so we lose the upper end because they aren't doing a good job. And so then we don't also have quality supervision for the folks who are doing clinical work and that doesn't pay very well. And the like all the things that you talked about. So to me, it feels like systemically we're not making being a therapist, especially in community mental health, that appealing. I'm glad that you said that this is something that's anecdotal because when I look at the research of why do therapists quit Where are the retention problems for therapists? The research shows basically nothing. That (laughs) this is something where, again, research into therapist workforce issues seems to be something that is not funded, not looked at very well, and probably contributes a lot to these very problems. And, you know, the research that is out there kind of applies to us tends to look more at general physicians. It looks at nurses. It looks at other things that are maybe a little bit easier to study because so many of those positions are based in hospitals and kind Mm -hmm. of easier things to track people in. And those research things seem to apply very much to therapists sort of things as well as we hear anecdotal stories from everybody. Better pay. Yeah, uh, better manageable caseloads, uh, having good work environments to work in with supportive colleagues, and probably most importantly is we kind of work in thankless jobs. That oh yeah, despite us moving into this profession to help people, to wanting to improve the world, to helping people better understand and live with mental illness, even in private practice where we might have a more cultivated clientele, we tend to see people at their worst. And when they get better, they disappear from our lives and they are replaced by somebody else at their worst. Yeah. And even for very long-term clients, I have several clients that I've been working with for several years and being able to see them through their ups and downs, it's not like we really get to celebrate a lot of things very publicly when things are going well. And this becomes a, a huge factor towards isolation of we, we don't get to celebrate wins. We kind of complain to each other about when things are difficult but when we do complain for those who aren't in our profession, the the criticism is, well, if you don't like it, why are you a therapist? That, <laughs> this so, is what you signed up for. <laughs> exactly. That there's, you know, and, and you get the other half of this message, which is just like, your job must be so fulfilling in what you do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love Being a therapist, working with clients, I have very deep and meaningful two-way relationships with many of my clients that I get benefits out of too. And there's a grind of seeing clients week in and week out that is just burdensome because it does inherently have this self-sacrifice of, 
I have to be present for other people and on many hours out of every day. Yeah. And I think when you talk about the cultivated caseload for private practitioners, and I think this also aligns for very specific, like evidence-based practices with specific grants and community mental health, the caseload is pretty similar. And I know when I was working in the welfare to work program in South Los Angeles, there were times when I felt like I was hearing the same story, tackling the same challenges, session after session after session after session, and also feeling the weight of the system and the the systemic racism and the inequity and, and all of the things that our clients are facing but again, behind this behind this divide where I'm not, I can publicly advocate, but I can't necessarily celebrate the win or or shout from the mountaintops the specific challenge of my client. I mean, obviously there's variations around advocacy and that kind of stuff, even within the clinical work. But it feels very much, and, and I remember one of my supervisees long ago saying, I can't hold the hope for this client or this whole community all the time. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. And and with these curated caseloads or these very specific programs, it feels like the whole world is experiencing this same type of trauma or this same kind of challenge. And it becomes very heavy. And honestly, and maybe, maybe I will be lambasted for this, but it kind of gets boring. <laughs> I I feel like there are times when, and, and I'm sure we all experience this in the pandemic. I think you even made a joke about like all of the notes are like talked about COVID. Like it's it's something where, especially with a global crisis that people are facing, and granted people have a di- individual things that are going on separately, but like every conversation feels so similar. I feel pretty fortunate because I'm not experiencing that as much in this moment. I think my boredom is outside of my therapy practice right now. That's a whole other conversation. But I think that this compassion fatigue, boredom, dissociation, desensitization, whatever it is, this kind of holding so much, especially when your caseload is gigantic or extremely curated, especially towards trauma, in my experience, it just feels like it's hard to do or both (laughs) or all of the things. I want to just shift a little bit because I think that that we've talked about this a lot, but I, I don't know that we've talked about what the workload actually means to therapists, especially in more of a mental health, community mental health kind of setting, or even in a private practice where you've not set your fees at a rate where you can say like, I'm going to see 15 clients and then I'm going to do yoga or whatever it is. Like, I think it's, it's something where when you have your caseload really high, there's all of the paperwork that comes that associates with it, whether it's department of mental health kind of paperwork where you're doing lots and lots of documentation. It could be writing letters for court, or it could be, you know, interacting with parents, or it could be sitting on the phone with an insurance company or whatever it is. There's all of this additional work that's in the background. And I think systemically, especially with a lot of government funded mental health programs, therapists are relied upon to do work that is not therapy. 
and, and I may have talked about this, but I, I literally had clinicians standing by fax machines. This is how long ago it was, but standing by fax machines and waiting for reports to go through to the welfare office and, and still having to meet the same productivity standard around billing because that's how we got the money. But there was all this administrative stuff. There was case management stuff. There was stuff that was not necessarily either paid for or paid for at the same rate where therapists were just grinding away and not actually getting to the rich clinical work, which, you know, Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we do need to take care of base level things, but we don't necessarily have to be the ones doing it as clinicians. Part of this is who gets drawn to this profession? People who want to find deep, meaningful work. Congratulations, mm-hmm. everybody. We, we like that. Yes. It doesn't work in such a bureaucratic system that requires such output like this. And we've talked about the divide between graduate education and then the real world. One of my private practice associates recently was talking about her supervision in community mental health, where she was initially told, okay, you're not in grad school anymore. This is... (laughs) This is actually what your job is. And it being completely a different experience altogether. So part of this is we just kind of keep moving the goalposts as far as when people actually get to do the things that they want to do. And the the training doesn't necessarily match, which again, these are things that we've talked about yeah. over and over and over again. An added piece is despite so much status quo-ness, everything being the same, that our, our fields kind of being stuck in a lot of ideas of these are things that we've always done. This is why this particular thing works. There's constantly changing requirements from yeah. licensing boards, from funding services that we end up with almost this weird thing of like all of our client sessions end up being largely the same. But all of the dancing around and training and education that we have to do in the background to keep those conversations with clients the same ends up becoming this other aspect of burdensome sort of work. Yeah. Oftentimes, un- or undercompensated and a a tremendous amount of of requirements that in in community mental health, that if you want to go to a certification or a training or I don't know, take a few days off that your productivity standards are still required to be met, that those aren't days that you get to plan to take off where your productivity standards get to to move in, in sync with that. You just have to overburden yourself on other days that are there as well. Yeah. And that's not across the board, but yes, I, I've definitely heard that. And I think it's something where this goes back up to the systemic level, which is there is a certain amount of money that you have to bill, and the only people who can bill it are therapists. And then if they have them, social skills or, or advocates or case managers or those kinds of things, that social skill trainers. And so those folks are paying for everyone, all of the administrative support, all the billing support, all the supervisors who are not seeing clients, all the, th- all the managers who are not seeing clients. These folks who are providing services to clients are required to bill at a certain level. And so the budgeting around that is huge, huge weight on the clinicians and the other mental health service providers. And so 
some organizations are able to make it so that it's like, yeah, you have to bill at this rate and we have enough people and this is what we're paying and blah, blah, blah. And you can take your training days or you can be sick or go on vacation and your productivity is not affected by it. And then others are like, well, you know, people who take a lot of sick days or who are constantly out or training a lot or doing all that stuff, like they're carrying less of the load. So it's fairer <laughs> to have everyone have, this is how many hours you bill per month, regardless of you, if you're here or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so even so, like there's different, you know, budgeting strategies. It still means that the people who are providing the services, the needed mental health services are also having to hold up the system where there's a lot of unfunded mandates, there's a lot of bureaucracy, there's a lot of underpayment of services. I was reading the RAND report, we'll link to it in the the show notes, but it's talking about how there is a suggestion, it's a wild suggestion, that you actually pay for services, (laughs) evidence-based services at cost versus underpaying it. And and this was something I was, you know, advocating and screaming from the mountaintops when I was in community mental health. Like, this is this is an unfunded mandate, you know, and getting so upset because the systems are not getting enough money, but they still rely on clinicians and other mental health service providers to do all the work. And so that's hugely onerous. I I'm gonna put you on the spot here a little okay. bit. Why aren't the professional organizations advocating for this stuff? <laughs> yeah, I say this as a former board member of a professional organization <laughs> and knowing fully well that you might might have a little little position here that, that for the next couple of months might might get you into some lukewarm Hot water. water. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I served several years on on one of the professional organization boards. This seems to be the place where some of that advocacy stuff could happen. From your perspective, why don't you see stuff? I've got my opinions, but I'm throwing this question at you. All right. All right. So I am not speaking for the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, nor do I wish to in this moment. But I, I think CAMFT actually does a pretty good job at advocating for different mechanisms for MFTs to get paid. And so that's an element of that. As far as generally professional associations not advocating for this stuff, I think there's a lot of different reasons given. I think that the focus or the the charge that professional associations are given can sometimes be focused on very specific goals that may or may not support this type of stuff, like workplace stuff or identifying ways to make sure that things are fully funded versus underfunded or workplace settings or those kinds of things. I think when professional associations take on their charge to try to make the profession, to advocate for the professionals under their care, they have to make decisions. And I think the low hanging fruit within our society oftentimes are either parity for different types of clinicians, which does kind of trickle down to to more pay. It can also be overarching mental health access or decreasing mental health stigma or making sure mental health services generally are funded. 
or it can be little nuancy little things where it's making sure that that there's this further in the future goal that can be reached, but this little step needs to happen and it's going to take a big lift. All of that to say, these are gigantic, oftentimes, organizations where they are gigantic ships rather than little sailboats, right? Like they, they can't move quickly oftentimes to address little things. And if, they've, if they're going in a single direction, it's very hard to shift course and identify this thing would make a big difference. This thing would make a big difference and like actually shoot out and take care of those things. It's like, here is something that looks like it'll make a difference. Let's sail forward in that direction. So obviously I'm being very vague for a lot of reasons, but what are your ideas? Because I feel like I'm. So I've I've got kind of my top three and congratulations on your corporate board sort of speech there. Yes. Um, The number one job of most professional organizations is to run the professional organization itself in order to stay solvent and stay as a business. Number two is to address many of these systemic issues around mental health is that the advocacy efforts do not get heard by politicians unless it deals with patient care and clinicians are kind of largely thrown out as being any sort of factor in it. Yes. Your job as a clinician in a community mental health position means pretty little to a person making a decision on a legislative floor that, well, mm-hmm. well, they, you know, I, I've never met a politician or a staffer who doesn't like as a person care, but as far as a, <laughs> a bill goes, being like, Hey, we, we need to treat clinicians better and like bump up their pay a little bit means nothing to any sort of advancement of mm-hmm. any sort of legislative bill. And number three is the implementation of these things. Professional organizations largely have to stay hands off as far as how it goes, as far as running an agency or running a community yeah. mental health department due to antitrust sort of things, due to just kind of not being the ones who run those businesses because they don't represent the businesses they or, or the agencies. They represent the people who come and pay their dues to the organization. And so what ends up happening around this communication from these organizations that offer lots of of good individual benefits is they speak to, here's things that you as the individual can do, but they don't speak to, here's how to run your business better in order to take care of your employees very often. And so this leads to a lot of the individual responsibility that is so inherent in our profession that leads to a lot of this burnout that yeah. we, we have this, you know, overarching, like, well, you're working with one person. So talk about how that one person can change things that puts a lot of this systemic burnout that you're talking about onto individual responsibility factors, despite these organizations being collective representations of all of us speaking to these very systemic problems. You said that way better than I was saying it. Well, I, I had time <laughs> to prepare and, and think about this <laughs> during the first part of the episode rather than just having it <laughs> so thrown you just, on. You like you liked putting me on the spot. I think even in how, like we, if we, we've talked about continued education, no matter where we land, it always feels like 
people are more concerned about, and I'll, I'll use the word patient because it makes it clear. People are more concerned about our patients than they are about us. Mm-hmm. And so everything has to be framed around how this impacts me- mental health care, the mental health of our society, individual patients, you know, and, and, and even looking at how does this improve the homelessness problem in my community? How does this, it, it becomes about how does this help me as an individual, whether I'm a legislator or a community advocate or whatever, versus how do I help the people that are going to solve this problem for our society? It's so those who have gone through community mental health, who see, you know, the greener pastures of private practice or, you know, untethered work when it comes to government contracts or this kind of stuff, even if it's shifting over into taking insurance contracts. Why are those people quitting? Why are people who, you know, feel chewed up by the community mental health system, the agency system, the you know, rehab drugs abuse center sort of, you know, the people who are taking that leap. Why do we see those people quitting? Ironically, for the same reasons. <laughs> I mean, I look at my practice. I look at the practice of folks who are either my consulting clients or colleagues or or any of that stuff. And there's you've niched down, you're having the same conversation, you're holding space for a lot of folks that need a lot of emotional care, you know, whether it's from themselves or society, whatever, it just, it, it becomes heavy. I know for myself, and, and this was something I actually talked about with, you know, a, a colleague, I liked the diversity of my, my workload in community mental health. And so solely seeing therapy clients has never been sufficient for me. I can't just pack my caseload with therapy clients because I want to do systemic work. I want to do leadership work. I want to do podcasting or whatever. Like I want to have these other things. And so for me, I see doing private practice, whether it's a a private pay, hybrid, or insurance-based practice, a lot of it becomes doing the same type of work with less resources. And being completely in charge of your own work life, having to, you know, if you don't meet productivity, you don't get paid versus you get in trouble at work. (laughs) You know, so it's without a salary. Oftentimes it's without guidance oftentimes. And so, yes, you can create this beautiful practice, but there's so much stress involved for many people, especially from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a lot of the same things, but without, unless you deliberately create it, it's without the cohort, it's without the colleagues to, to have those processing sessions or to vent with or to peer support on cases is basically what you're talking about. It's, it's being able to not feel so isolated, which yeah. I think is, you know, one of the things where it gets boiled down early in our careers of like, yeah, private practice is so isolating, but it's the richness that goes beyond just that statement that really doesn't hit with people. And so what ends up happening is 
this work-life balance blends so much. And especially what a lot of clinicians are facing here during the pandemic, working from home or yeah. living at work now is kind of yeah. where a lot yeah. of us are. That the work-life balance aspect of it is we have an increased demand for our services. Many of us are you know, facing very full practices, the management of our own lives. You've got kids and family members, your own mental wellness going, you know, just outside of your at-home office door or your bedroom door or your living room couch, wherever you are, that things just are not delineated very well. Mm-hmm. And I've felt this way. I've heard this from other clinicians kind of throughout my career. There are times where I just want to have a job where all I have yes. to do is show up and yeah. to be able to save my care uh, for after work activities yeah. that comes from this place of not being able to not wanting to continue to fix the world and knowing yeah. that there's so much more that can be done. Yeah. Have I told you about my experience of doing some supervision after I'd been in private practice for a while doing it for community mental health? Did I tell you about this at all? No. So one of my one of my mentors talked to me and was like, hey, we have someone out on a, a leave and we need somebody to come in and do supervision for like 10, 15 hours a week. And and so we set an hourly rate and and whatever. And I was in this weirdly lit office. And that's, I'm always very sensitive to that. Like I was in this horrible little office, reviewing charts, doing group supervision, doing individual supervision. And, you know, everything like the, the office was kind of awful. The commute was awful. The people were great though. So I, I want to be very clear on that. I, I felt my shoulders drop. I just was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to sit here for 10 hours, 15 hours a week. And I wasn't getting paid even my hourly rate. It was a little bit lower, but I'm like 10 or 15 hours a week. I just get to work. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about marketing and getting clients. I don't have to worry about anything. I can just do the work. And it was like this dream vacation. And it wasn't like it was a great office. Like I had a, an awesome office when I was in community mental health. Like two of the walls were windows. I had a beautiful view. Like it was amazing. I had this horrible little like interior office. I had a horrible commute. I had all of these things. And I just, I felt such relief because I was just getting paid to do the work. And granted, I was doing supervision, so I didn't have to worry about productivity. So it was, it was, it was a good combination there. But to me, I think that's, I didn't realize what I was carrying until I sat down into that little role for a few hours a week and realized the weight we carry as business owners is that we are constantly having to scavenge for work mm-hmm. and, and maybe not as you go forward, but then it's, then it becomes like, do I take more cases? You know, did some money appealing? Do I have the space? Like it becomes so much responsibility to make all of those decisions and be solely responsible for your own income it's freeing, but it's also a weight that I think it's very exhausting for folks, especially if they've not set their fee properly. We've had a couple episodes recently on that, or if they don't set parameters around how much they work and that kind of stuff, because it becomes this constant decision-making and responsibility. So 
some calls to action here. Number one, if you are working in agency, community, mental health, that kind of stuff, especially if you have an opportunity to join a union that's already there, make sure that part of the union advocacy is towards workplace environment issues. Mm -hmm. If union's not available for you, advocate for that anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Quality of the environment around you is something that directly affects the way that we end up approaching our jobs and therefore client outcomes. Number two, if there's not peer support in your work environment, have something regular for peer support for yourself. And I know that a couple of our listeners have reached out to me as far as looking for peer support groups for therapists. Stay tuned. Katie and I are trying to figure out how we can make something like that potentially work. If you have those kinds of resources out there already, please share them with us either privately or through our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. And number three is really be able to set some boundaries for yourself throughout the profession as far as what you're willing to accept from the profession. And I know that all three of these are pseudo sort of individual responsibilities, but if you're still listening at this point in the episode... (laughs) The system's not going to bend unless there's enough people within the system who advocate for a lot of these changes. And, you know, we've heard from people throughout our careers of just kind of the, I asked by myself and things didn't change. And at the end of the day, I just wanted to self-sacrifice more to take care of clients because there was people in need that just reinforces the system being the way that it is. So make some changes have some good boundaries, and continue to listen to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Stay tuned. We'll have more <laughs> ideas. I wanted to just add a couple more ideas there because I think there is there is a need broadly for mental health to be respected and in the spotlight. And I think the time is now. People are talking about it. There are more and more articles about it. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Yes. <laughs> I just was thinking about the, your crisis is my productivity. I think we've mentioned that before. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think right now everyone is feeling the weight of mental health concerns, whether it's a friend or family member, whether it's their own mental health concerns. And so there's an opportunity here to bring this into the spotlight. I know there's a lot of you out on TikTok doing great stuff, people who are blogging. There's so many things where people are bringing it to the forefront, but I think showing how we are situated, well-situated to manage this crisis, to support the people who need the support to help heal our communities in whatever way that we can. I think that's, that's a way that each of us individually, especially those of us who that's part of our business model anyway. You know, let's show people how they can take care of themselves. Let's show them how mental health is going to improve their life. And I think that decreasing stigma is part of it. I think helping to make sure that money is being paid for mental health services, whether it's through advocacy, through the way you charge your own fees, whether it's advocating for yourself with insurance companies to get raises, I think that 
becomes part of the solution too. And then for other folks like me, diversify your workload. If you don't feel like you can see another client, don't. (laughs) (laughs) Decrease your, your caseload a little bit and see what other opportunities that you can use to share your knowledge. But don't, don't stop being a therapist if that's what you want to be. Just diversify your caseload or your workload. You can find our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. Follow us on our social media. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelms, Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.